Sound and Memory Approaching the Holocaust Through Music Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Ian Biddle. This series of podcasts will cover a range of topics relating to sound, music and the Holocaust. Throughout the podcast series, we'll be asking some questions about how music was made by victims of the Holocaust, why they continue to make music under such appalling conditions, and why a refusal to give up the status of cultural beings was so pronounced among the victims. The podcast is designed so you can listen along whilst doing other things. In today's podcast we ask, what is testimony and why should we care? We know the Holocaust happened because of the evidence base. It's as simple as that. That base is enormous and has been extensively worked on by numerous historians and others. Broadly speaking, then, that base is made up not just of testimony, the central topic of today's podcast, but also a number of other kinds of evidence. For example, we could include in that evidence policy documents of the Nazi regime itself. We know, for example, that the regime undertook an extensive and comprehensive review of the numbers of Jews killed by Germans and other Axis authorities between 1942 and 1943. And this includes various reports and registers found both at the national and local level. There's also, of course, evidence found at the sites of the atrocities, bodies, graves, and the architecture of mass extermination, such as crematoria and gas chambers. And then there are other wartime reports. There's that Allied reconnaissance footage, for example, of Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And finally, we have a range of post-war demographic studies on population loss that allow us to guess quite intelligently, based on the evidence available, how many people were murdered by the regime. But of course, Without wanting to cast even the slightest doubt on the fact of there having been a Holocaust, there are, we have to admit, some disturbing problems with that evidence base. First of all, we know that the Nazis and their collaborators began deliberately destroying evidence of their atrocities in 1943, as it became clear to them they were going to lose the war. Secondly, of course, the figures generally agreed on now are an estimate based on a number of projections, and these projections are sometimes based on detailed studies and other times are basically licking a finger and putting it in the air. And finally, sadly, we do not have any single or inviolable smoking gun to which we can point and say, see, this was designed here by this person at this time. They did it. It's them. But of course, this is not at all unusual in cases of genocide. The British government, for example, engaged in a deliberate and extensive strategy of covering up its cruel atrocities against the Kikuyu people in Kenya in the 1950s, a series of atrocities that very few know or talk about today. This is also true, of course, of the Belgian regime's terrible atrocities committed in the so-called Congo Free State in the 19th century and also of Spain's terrible and extensive mistreatment of pre-Columbian peoples in Central and South America from the 16th century onwards. Similarly, the deliberate brutalization, starvation and massacre of Armenians and Greeks 
by Ottoman and Turkish forces between 1914 and 1923 continues to be denied by the Turkish state. Indeed, in that state, it is considered a crime to make such a claim. The reasons behind this deliberate hiding or denial of evidence of this kind are complex. Individual states such as the United Kingdom, Spain, Austria, Hungary, Turkey or the US are always keen to minimise challenges to their legitimacy. Indeed, one often encounters a feeling among some that our pasts must be sanitised, depopulated of perpetrators, and told in only a flattering light. We must be proud, in inverted commas, of our country, and any attempt to undermine such pride is seen as a threat to the emotional and psychological legitimacy of our state. Indeed, the collective forgetting of such atrocities is something that we are all encouraged to engage in. There is a psychological benefit, one might argue, to forgetting the brutal past of one's grandparents' or great-grandparents' times. We are taught by the media and other channels for managing public opinion to see calls to reckon with our terrible pasts as a threat to our culture. Why must you dwell on such negatives, we are asked? What good does it do to live in the past? And yet, as the recent Black Lives Matter movement shows, a refusal to accept those terrible pasts, a refusal that is to acknowledge and learn from such atrocities, leaves us in a state of anxious and almost hysterical defence of our history. In short, it's really not good for us to have to be ever vigilant in this way. As a subset of a group of larger phenomena, then, Holocaust denial involves denying the Holocaust not because its adherents can't cope with the Holocaust brutality, but because the acceptance that the Holocaust happened at all disturbed something in their identity makeup. This could be related, of course, to notions of nationhood or race or other geopolitical concerns and is invariably a symptom of unbridled antisemitism. Hence, when we see Holocaust denial in action, we should always ask, what purpose does this serve? What gain is sought from those trying to perpetrate the terrible untruth that is Holocaust denial? So evidence, then, is crucial both to the study of the Holocaust and to a discrediting of Holocaust deniers. It's important for a number of reasons. First, it helps us to challenge a range of gross misrepresentations of the past, such as Holocaust denial, by making a detailed and specific case for the prosecution of the perpetrators of the atrocities. Second, it makes deniers have to work very hard to make their case. They have to try to bring evidence to bear. They have to stack up a series of assertions based on some kind of no-doubt cherry-picked, distorted or fabricated evidential base. And thirdly, it means that in a court of law, genocide denial can be tested, laid out and measured against this extensive evidence base. So, to make one thing very clear, when it comes to the Holocaust and other genocides both before and after it, there is absolutely no doubt that the evidence is both sufficient and robust enough to bear witness to the atrocities. There is nothing in the evidence base that undermines that singular truth. Nothing. Nada. Nichevo. Zilch. We might want to argue about the number of chimneys at Auschwitz, but we do not argue about the fact 
that there was an Auschwitz. So, given the robustness of the evidence base, despite various regimes' attempts to destroy such evidence, we might ask why we are drawn, so drawn in particular, to just one kind of evidence, today's central topic, testimony. Certainly, beyond the contested, dispersed and sometimes fragmentary evidence of genocide, testimony offers us something manageable, shaped at a human level, a single person's experience or a small group's witnessing. This manageability has become ever more important to us as our culture's attitudes to grief, emotion and memory began to shift from a broadly demographic outlook, the concentration on populations, if you like, and large groups of individuals, towards a more expressive, authenticity-focused culture of confession. In short, the 1960s, with its emphasis on autonomy, emotionality, self-expression, also made room for new attitudes to memory and history, which are still with us today. And, of course, one key event in this turn from the demographic accounting for the Holocaust to more human, localised understandings was the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem in 1961. In some very telling ways, it was this trial that changed the meaning and centrality of testimony within the legal processes of bringing Nazis to justice. Here, countless witnesses lined up to support the prosecution's case against Eichmann. Their testimonies were emotional, shot through with anger, despair and resentment, and also with an extraordinary resilience and dignity. Here, then, emerged what many have since termed a muscular testimony, a new way of telling these stories that are meant to bring about justice. But not just justice, because justice here stands for more than what it might seem. It stands also for an unburdening, an unloading and a putting of things back in their proper place. Retribution, recompense, reordering and return. After the Eichmann trial, Jews in Israel and in the diaspora more broadly, the trial, remember, was widely televised, felt more able to discuss their experiences during the Holocaust and to engage in public discourse about their experiences. Indeed, by the early 1970s, when cultural habits had begun to change more widely, and as second-wave feminism taught us that, quote, the personal is always political, the testimonial drive of the post-Eichmann trial landscape began to insist, rather, that the political is always personal. In other words, it became not only possible, but inevitable, that survivors would want to share their stories. There is a very famous and instructive moment in the history of Holocaust studies, where this new testimonial authenticity and openness confronts, and in turn is confronted by, the older scholarly distrust of testimony. The famous Holocaust historian scholar Dori Laub tells us the story of that famous historian's conference in the 1990s, somewhere in North America, at which a survivor spoke of how she saw four chimneys at Auschwitz go up in flames during the prisoners' revolt only to be set upon by the historians, who then lectured her about the fact that there was only one chimney at Auschwitz. First of all, of course, the survivor was testifying to an extraordinary fact of revolt at Auschwitz, so the number of chimneys is frankly irrelevant. Indeed, 
as Marianne Hirsch and Leo Spitzer have put it, the function of testimony now is not to inform factually, but to transmit affectively, which is to say emotionally. So testimony might have profoundly useful legal uses and might have formed a key element of Eichmann's trial in 1961. But in the end, testimony also bears witness to feeling, emotion, pain, resilience, and the whole gamut of human emotion. It enriches, challenges, and complements the documentary and quantitative data. But perhaps most importantly, it humanizes and localizes, helping us make sense of the past from a perspective not unlike our own. We are invited, therefore, to feel empathy, to identify with the victims and to celebrate the culture the Nazis tried so hard to destroy. So what about music? Where is sound and song, the singer, the musician in all this? One of the things I will be exploring in this series of podcasts is how sound has been, until very recently, a missing component of our engagement with the Holocaust. Take, for example, the instance of song in the Holocaust. Shirley Gilbert's groundbreaking work, built on the shoulder of a handful of lone scholars working at the edge of Holocaust studies, such as Gilla Flam, Peter Novick, Ruth Rubin, and of course the great song collectors of the Holocaust themselves, like Schmerker Kaczyginski and Hirsch Levick and many others, raises the question as to what kind of evidence a song might be. If you think about it, songs, especially when anonymously authored, are collectively owned. They can be easily moved from one place to another. They are passed from one listener to another and altered, changed, bent by the pressure put on them by the brutal circumstances of their usage. This leads us to a claim that must be made. Song can and often does bear witness. Holocaust songs, thousands and thousands of them, come from adaptations of existing tunes or new materials made for the needs of the moment. Schmelke Kaczyginski himself, in the introduction to his collection of songs from Vilna, called Das Gesang von Vilna Ghetto, published in 1947, argues strenuously for this meaning of song in the Holocaust. He argues, indeed, for a kind of compressed historiography in which events gallop together and songs shift rapidly from one meaning to another. There are songs of complaint, morale-boosting songs, perverse lullabies, Jewish partisan songs, songs designed to offer escape or insight, and so-called inversion songs, in which irony and bearing false witness are used to comic effect. In the topsy-turvy world of the ghettos and camps, the individual experience is often collectivized, turned into what Kaczyginski calls folklore. Individuelle Schaffung ist für unsere Eugen verwandelt geworden in Folklore. Individual undertakings and actions are transformed before our eyes into folklore, he says. Here then, we see that sound, and song in particular, offers us an additional kind of testimonial material. Whereas testimony tends to be voiced singularly, song can describe collective experience. Whereas testimony tends to be written after the fact, with one or two notable exceptions of course, 
Song is written at the heart of things, live, so to speak. Whereas testimony tends towards narrativization of emotion, song tends towards emotion as such. In other words, when we study the Holocaust through the songs of its victims, we are adding to the evidence base, intensifying our insights into what it must have felt like to be incarcerated in the Warsaw Ghetto or at Auschwitz. As we shall see, it is not simply that the Holocaust teaches us something about music, as we saw in the first podcast last week, but that music also teaches us something about the Holocaust. And it is with this insight that I leave you this week. Join me next week for another episode of Sound and Memory.